At a time when we're told to bring our whole selves to the office, there's still a lot of stigma attached to mental health. Enter The Anxious Achiever, a show about how anxiety, depression, and other issues affect people at work. It's from Harvard Business Review. Some of the world's most successful people struggle with mental health challenges, and host Maura Ahrens-Mealy is on a mission to tell their stories. I think you'll really appreciate the episode with Gabrielle Union, who speaks candidly about her experiences with toxic Hollywood workplaces and her ongoing struggle with anxiety and PTSD. Check out the new season of The Anxious Achiever. Maura talks to leaders who love their work to find inspiration from their messy, anxious, depressed, and joyous truth. Get The Anxious Achiever wherever you get your podcasts. It's Reshma. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect, the show where we break up with perfection to live braver, bolder, and happier lives. I'm really excited about today's episode because I get to talk to one incredible woman who has paved the way and allowed me and other South Asian women to dream bigger. Indra Nui worked as the CEO of PepsiCo, one of the largest food and beverage companies in the world. For 12 years, she was one of the most prominent women to lead a Fortune 500 company. We had a fascinating conversation about the challenges of being a woman of color at the top and the importance of sisterhood in front of a virtual audience of Girls Who Code students. And I'm delighted to share that discussion with you right now. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's so great to see each and every single one of you here. Uh, it is an honor to have someone who I have admired almost my entire adult life uh, in their Nui. It's true. Um, as a fellow Desi, we always say, you cannot be what you cannot see. And so many South Asian women just watched you, watched your ascent, watched your career, watched your authenticity, and you helped us believe that we could too. And so I am so grateful to you. Um, I love your history and your story. You grew up in Chennai. You dreamed big, uh, similar to my immigrant parents. Uh, they encourage you to excel in education. I think earlier you said they encourage you to, to not to be number two and to not lead. Because uh, mm-hmm. I think like many immigrant families, there's a sense of protection and a sense of aversion to risk. And you overcame that, which I think is so powerful. You have uh, consistently been ranked as one of the most powerful women uh, in the world. Uh, You are one of the few ever women of color to be a CEO of a Fortune 100 company. So it's an honor, honor, honor to have you here. First question. So Girls Who Code, one of our tenets or our values, if you go into our office or you open up our website, is sisterhood. And I've heard you say that you wanna create a sisterhood of women leaders. So I want to start by asking you, what does sisterhood mean to you? Mm -hmm. You know, just before we started, we were having a chat with some of your uh, alumni and talking to them about um, my growing up and my uh, evolution. And um, I look at the time that I was a young uh, executive or a young person working in a company. I was the only woman and there there were no women at all in the entire Uh, office. 
the only time I'd see women is when I went to the restroom. They were the secretaries. And they would all talk to me and I would talk to them. But I had nobody to talk to about you know, uh, something that I faced, which was like a bias situation. Somebody rolled their eyes at me and when I was talking, I didn't have anybody to talk to. I couldn't go to a guy and say, you know, the other guy rolled his eyes at me. He'd look at me and say, you're overreacting. Hmm. That used to be the standard answer. I'm sure many of you have experienced it. But when you talk to another woman, they can actually understand what you're saying because they too experienced it. The whole idea is if each of us look out for each other, call out bad behavior, perhaps the unsuspecting males would understand that the world is changing mm. and that perhaps their behavior needs to change. And that sort of a sisterhood where you can be authentic, you're not being judged all the time, people care for you. You know, it doesn't matter whether you rise or I rise, together the sisterhood rises. Uh, that sort of unselfish um, friendship, which many men have, and it's been fine-tuned over the years. We need to develop too. Um, you know, lots has been written about competition amongst women. Mm. There's no question that there is competition among women. And men like that competition among women. Because then they can say, oh, these women are too bitchy or yeah. too witchy or whatever they want to call it. <laughs> um, but I think we have to resist the urge to be competitive with each other. We ought to be looking at how to lift each other. It's so true. And you're right. We make so much of the fact that there's competition amongst women, but I'm here because so many women supported me, like mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton, you know, Melinda Gates. I mean, I've looked up to for you and learned so much from you. And there's, it's just Bazoma St. John, who's on my, our board. There, there are so many incredible women. And I think we need to talk more about the sisterhood and right. teach young women more about the sisterhood than, you know, put a lot of emphasis on the quote competition that, that exists amongst us. So, you know, you were a woman of color running a major company, right? And you've said it before how hard it was, right? And mm. I think so many women, especially women of color, feel this pressure, right, to be perfect. They always say, our, our mothers told us, you have to work twice as hard, be right. twice as good. There was no room for failure. You know, what are some of the biggest challenges you think that women of color leaders face? And how did you handle that pressure to be perfect? Because I, did you feel that pressure? I don't know if I would think that you did. I was a woman of color. I was an immigrant. That was double whammy woman. I assumed that when people saw me or saw my work, it was always going to be discounted by some percentage. Mm. So I always imagined I was in a hole. And I always said I have to come out of the hole to get even, and then I have to rise from that. And that actually gave me uh, an inner drive to do very, very well because I was always in, in that imaginary hole. Now, I may not have been in that hole in the eyes of many of the people because they got used to my work, but I kept putting myself in my hole. Mm -hmm. So I think that from my perspective, since I always felt so different, I always saw myself as digging, digging myself out of a hole. On top of that, I had this immigrant's fear. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Many immigrants have a fear, don't wanna fail, wanna succeed, wanna do our parents proud, wanna do your family proud. You know, you came crossing many seas and miles uh, to start a new life. You want to make sure you do well. So I had this being in a hole and the immigrant's fear. Both together caused me to work extra hours, put in extraordinary commitment to every job I had. But what I didn't realize is that actually put me ahead of the queue in so many ways because people said, oh, my God, 
you give a job to Indra, it's going to be done perfectly. So you see, but it was a time commitment, Reshma, that was just, just spectacular. My God. Yeah, it's interesting because Carol Dweck always says, like, if life were one long grade school, girls would rule the world. And yeah. I think often women find that when they do do the A+, they're not rewarded. But it seemed like you were. I worked for people, worked for CEOs or senior executives who truly appreciated what I did for them, mm. truly, and um, um, pushed me, you know, pushed me to do more and more and more. And if the job required this and I did this, they said, you can do this. So I always did more than was expected, but then they pushed me to do even more. And at that point, it's like, aren't you ever happy with my work? But on the other hand, you realize in retrospect, you know, I'm glad he pushed me because I, what I gained in that increment was just unbelievable. So uh, I thank all of those people who pushed me to new levels because they genuinely believed in me. And when somebody doesn't genuinely believe in you, it's tough to work with them because then they treat you like a pair of hands as opposed to real asset. Yeah. The worst thing you can do is to be viewed as just the doormat. Right. It's almost like a, you know, it's like Serena Williams, right? You want to be the athlete who's sitting there at the edge of their ability and like a coach who's saying, do it again, do it again, do That's it again. exactly right. Rafa's like that. Serena's like that. That's right. Yeah. That's powerful. So yeah. one of the things I also really admire about you is that you have always fought for what you believed. And there was a time when you were one of the first to start talking about the health impacts, right, of, of Pepsi's products and the mm -hmm. environmental impacts. You got a lot of pushback, a lot of heat. And, you know, our girls are entering a field or an industry that, you know, is not always kind to them. So what advice do you have for them you know, that you've learned in, in your career about standing in the face of resistance like that. So let me ask a question. Why isn't the industry kind to them? So, you know, I think you, one would think in Silicon Valley that all nerds are welcome, hmm. but I still think that it's an industry that grew up without women and people of color. And so when you're first trying to have people enter, especially if you're entering one person here, two people here, five people here, there's resistance. They should be welcoming the best talent as opposed to whether you're male or female or, you know, white or black or brown. It shouldn't matter. They should say, boy, I've got a talent here. How do I absorb them? But let me come back to my own experiences. Um, at every point in time, you know, if you want to do something different, somebody is there to stop you or to say can be done or makes no sense to do it. Or why do we have to uh, change direction? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I've heard it all. The point is you're not doing it because you want to showcase yourself. You're doing it because that's what's going to keep the company successful going forward. And so when you're doing it for the right reasons, you can't be taken off your game. Mm. just go right back to saying, let me tell you why I'm doing this. This is what the external world is saying to us. And if we don't change, we're going to fail. So if you don't like this direction of changing the portfolio, tell me what's changing the world that I should change my direction. So I always use that external mega trends as the true north to guide what we were doing. Uh, if it was a pet project that I was undertaking, all that criticism, I would have buckled and folded under it. But it, I wasn't doing it for that. I was doing it because I wanted to secure the future of the company. So coming back to your extraordinary women, um, what will it take to set up the most amazing computer shop with just women? 
start a business around that. I mean, I'm talking about what would it take? What kind of company could we set up? You know, I, I think that before COVID happened, the moment we were in was really making progress in college campuses. So you were starting to see at MIT, Stanford, Harvard, critical mass, like the computer, computer science departments had gone from 18% female when I started Girls Who Code eight years ago to now almost 30, 35%. So we were right beginning to kind of get this kind of systematic change and then the crisis happened. Mm. So, you know, what I think the moment is, is to continue to, you know, to continue to flood the pipeline, support the women who have raised their hand and said, like Deanne and Kayasu, who you met, so they continue with it, right? And aren't rolled back by the challenges they're about to face in college. And then the women who have made it and the women of color who have made it into these companies to support them. And so I think it's work and, and I think it's work that can be done. I think like you almost have to keep your intention on it. Mm -hmm. um, I wanna ask a question from Lahiri from Michigan. She says, I want to know from Indra, what was this single defining moment of your career? when you realized that you wanted to be a leader? Uh, you know, you can be a leader of a small group, bigger group of a company. Um, I don't think you ever sit down and say, I'm going to be CEO. What do I need to do to become CEO? Because the minute you start that way, you won't become CEO. Mm -hmm. So there were, even the day before they told me I was going to be CEO, I didn't know I was going to be CEO. So the real thing is, how do you focus on doing the job that you were given exceedingly well? That should be the total focus of what you're doing. And if you do the job you're doing exceedingly well, everything else will take care of itself, right? Couple of pieces of advice. Put your hand up for the most difficult assignments. Mm. Nobody notices you when you maintain something that's already doing well. But if you put your hand up for a business in trouble that you'll turn it around or a project that's lost its way that you'll go in and fix it, then people say, you know what? Nobody else could do it. Reshma could. So it's very important that you put your hand up for the most difficult assignment. And even if you fail, it's okay because they'll say everybody else failed. It's not a problem that can be solved. That's one. Second, you should be known for something. People mm. should look at you and say, you know, let me tell you what Reshma is good at. She, if everything else fails, go to Reshma. All right. Third, focus on the job at hand. Don't focus on the next promotion because then you come across as political. Don't come across as political, okay? And especially if you're trying to become a CEO or a division president or something like that, be ambitious, but don't wear your ambition on your sleeve. I love that. Don't wear your ambition on your sleeve. Um, many men wear their ambition on their sleeve. People hate them for it, but they accept it as male behavior. But in women, they'll say, oh, Reshma's performance is fantastic, but she's, too ambitious. There's always a but. When it comes to men, it might say, Bill's work was pretty good and he's ambitious. You know what I mean? Yeah. For men, it's an and ambitious. For women, it's a but ambitious. Why do you think ambition is seen as an unattractive trait, though, for women? Um, ambition projected, for some reason, is viewed as unattractive. I don't even know it's unattractive. It's viewed as too destructive in the work environment. And I don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe the way we project our ambition is that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Or that girls are kind of, we're, we're taught to be kind of people pleasers and humble. Like I always joke, like when you go to like a, if you're sitting in like a sixth grade uh, award ceremony, 
the boys will walk up and they'll like, you know, do their, you know, snap, right? And the girls will be like, who me? Like, we're always supposed to kind of be like, who me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I will tell you that a lot of women talk to me about um, how uh, is it that I perform so much better than my, the guys and I didn't get the promotion. You need supporters, you need mentors. You need people around you who lift you up. You can't do it all yourself. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned at Girls Who Code. I was that we, you know, I interviewed Jack Dorsey. He and he's been a huge advocate and supporter of mine and was yeah. one of the first people to be like, great, where do you want me to sign up before I'd even executed it? And so you need people who are in your corner. So and you need uh, prominent men in your corner. Right. You have to find both men and women who are going to back you up. Yeah. Um, so Manasa from Illinois, what is your advice to girls who are afraid to speak out, to speak their opinion? You know, you've got to develop your confidence. It's not to speak up. Some people want to have some airtime in every meeting, even if what they have to say is eh, no good. Don't do that because then it's like, oh God, there she goes again. They'll roll their eyes. Um, when you speak, people have to notice that you said something. Now, why am I saying this? I want you to sit there and say to yourself, you're going to a meeting to make an impact now, I'm going to tell you something that will probably make you feel tired listening to me. I was more prepared than anybody else in the meeting. When I got a presentation, a pre-read, if it was 80 pages, 100 pages, 200 pages, I would read everything. So I knew all the material. I knew all the questions. You know, it used to be funny, even when I was not CEO, once I left the meeting, people would come to grab my book because I would have notes on every page. And they were just waiting for those notes because they became better people. So you have to put the time in to think of those two questions that you're going to ask or two comments that you're going to make that make people sit up and say, shit, I didn't think about it. Mm. Now, how do you get that skill? Watch people two levels higher than you. How they behave, how they act, how they interact, what kind of questions they ask. Watch that. That's a great tip. Um, so Isha from Newton, mm. if you could go back in time and give advice to your younger self, what would you say? You know, there are a lot of things I, I did well and um, I don't know what I would change. Even as I'm writing the book, I don't know what I'd change about me. The one thing that I did not do well is uh, I was so focused on making sure I was zooming out, zooming in and reading a lot more than I needed to so that I was well-versed in everything. You know, I was multiplexing with my kids. You know, I have two daughters yeah. and I can't think of the number of times they'd be lying on me and I would be reading stuff when in fact they needed my undivided attention. Yeah. I cannot recapture those days. On the other hand, had I given them the attention they need, would I have been fulfilled? I don't know, Reshma. I have no idea. Would I have been CEO? Maybe not. But I'd have never known what it is to be CEO. I might have been just a good senior level executive. So I don't know. In one way, I regret it. On the other hand, I go, that's water under the bridge. Let me make the best of the times we have now. I was always available for them when they were in trouble. If they mm -hmm. got hurt, I was there. There's a problem in school. I was the first person there. So I was a very involved mother, but not a... Uh, attentive mother, if you want to call it that. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I also, you know, when my parents came here as refugees, and so they didn't have time. I don't even think they knew what college I applied to. They didn't read yeah. my essay. They didn't helicopter parent me. And I think I turned out fine. And I often find with a lot of kids who do have parents that are in the nitty gritty about everything, they don't have resilience. Yeah. Um, so Mahati from New Jersey, what is your favorite part of your daily job? You mean now or when I was working? Uh, when you were working. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, when, you're, when you're a CEO, your life is programmed down to the minute. You know your calendar for two years out because you have so many mandatory meetings between budget, planning sessions, quarterly reviews, performance reviews, investor meetings, earnings calls, market tours. For two years, I knew what my schedule was. So my most favorite part was when there was one hour, there was nothing programmed. I go, you mean I can actually do something I want during the time I'm in the office, wow, this is a luxury. I can actually walk around the floors, see the employees, go to the cafeteria. Uh, somebody will always find you and tag along with you and say, can I just get something approved while you're walking? <laughs> but the favorite part was downtimes. Otherwise I would do all my thinking at home, you know, in the night when everybody's asleep, I'd be awake thinking. So um, just, just that thinking time. If I'd had the luxury of it, it would be great. Yeah, I was Warren Buffett was saying that he schedules only one meeting on his calendar a week. Can yeah, you believe but that? You, can, you can be a Buffett and say all that. We were <laughs> <all> mere mortals. <laughs> um, Anna from California, what did you do when you didn't succeed or do as well as you wanted to do? There were many failures along the way. You feel like shit, okay? Remember I told you about the immigrant fear and all that? that makes you want to beat yourself up even more. But you didn't have to because everybody goes through failure, okay? But then you feel terrible about it. And then you're something behind you saying, your parents are probably saying, how could you have done this? You know, you get that yeah. voice in your head. But interestingly, if you get out of that doom loop that you've created for yourself and instead say, wait a minute, what did I learn from this failure? What are the lessons from this uh, setback I've had? How do I make sure that those issues don't happen to me again? That's a whole different learning process. It's okay to feel like shit for a day or two. If I tell you not to do that, you'll say you're not human. So, hey, you're going you're gonna to feel like crap. There are days I would just shut the door. I would tell my secretary, 10 minutes, don't let anybody in. I'd go to my bathroom in my office and cry and come out. I'm doing fine right now. <laughs> you have to go through that if that's what makes you you know, get rid of the frustration and your anger inside you about something that didn't go well. But sit back and say, what could I have done differently? How could I have approached this differently? How would so-and-so have done it? How would so-and-so have done it? When you start analyzing it objectively, all of a sudden, things will become great. Most importantly, don't surround yourself with yes people mm -hmm. who tell you what you did was right. They did everything wrong. What they should tell you is, you know, what you did was right but maybe you could have done something a little bit different. You don't want people around you to say that you're wrong all the time. That's also terrible. So you want somebody who gives you a good balanced perspective. Well, Indra, this was an amazing conversation. Um, thank you, thank you. I learned so much from you and I think the girls, I know they have to, so thank, thank you. you. for having me, Reshma. You're a wonderful person. What you're doing is frame-breaking. I'm so much in awe of what you're doing in your team, but thank you for having me. Thank you. That was Indra Nui. 
former CEO of PepsiCo, and one of the few women of color to lead a Fortune 500 company. Thank you to all the students who asked such thoughtful questions, and thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Brave Not Perfect wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can hear new conversations about bravery every other Tuesday. See you soon. Hi, I'm your executive producer, Oliver Ash Klein. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Today's episode was also made possible by my co-producers, Tanya Zaparonik and Charlotte Stone. And of course, our fearless team leader, Deborah Singer. Andrea Jordan, Reshma Sajani, Ashley Gramby, Gloria Noel, Aaron Page, Zenzele Skylark, Alisa Dwyer, and Raven Abreu also contributed to the making of this episode. See you in two weeks.